What does healing mean to you? I have to get to a quiet place with with God where I I am feeling the pain of what needs to heal. the mental health podcast raising unanswered questions sharing unanswered prayers we are faith-based peer-led story-driven and stigma breaking i am tony roberts i am eric riddle and we are revealing voices This is episode 30. It is. It's great to have you back in the studio. Yes, it's been a while. I've been out being a supportive husband uh, on my wife's travel journeys. Her work has taken her to New Jersey to monitor some prisons there, make sure they're educating their uh, special needs youth or under 22. Yeah. This time I, I wrote a book, which or am writing a book, which we'll talk more about later. But yeah, uh, but it yeah, my wife's work takes her quite a few places, and I'm gonna do my best if my mental health holds to um, to accompany her. It, it really helps to uh, to be there by her side. Yeah. Now you had a trip for looking at schools, right? I did. Yeah, my my daughter is actually kind of joked about Princeton. Um, why not? I, I, I don't even know. She, she sometimes just gets these ideas and Princeton would ta- be good. wants to talk about them. So mm-hmm. I told her that you've been there. Yeah. Well, Purdue is much closer to home. Mm-hmm. Good school. For all of you from Indiana, you're probably familiar with Purdue. It's a, it's mm. a state school, so it's mm-hmm. much more affordable than, than Princeton. And yeah. I'm an IU guy. IU and Purdue tend to be rivals. <coughs> The Boilermakers. Yeah, they tend to be rivals, right? And and so before we left, I I told my ex-wife, who I went up there with, I said, I'm not going to say a bad word about Purdue this whole trip. And I did not. In fact, I was very impressed. We get up there, and you know, there's a lot of people. I think they said 1,800 people. And one of the first things you do is you go in this auditorium. And so uh, we're sitting there, and it just so happened that the intro session and the like first academic session were in the same space. So this is like a two and a half hour commitment. And like right as it was starting, I I nearly was like having a panic attack, which I it's been a long time since that happened, but I, I could tell my, my breathing was really accelerating. Do and you know what was the onset of that? What was the trigger? So the the trigger, you know, it, it really kinda snuck up on me, but I've got just a lot of emotions around college in general um, and academics, really. I, I moved in the middle of my sophomore year in high school and then uh, in college, the transition from high school to college is really rough. And then I did the MBA program at IU and my semester, I only did one semester at IU before transferring up to the Indianapolis campus. So that semester in Bloomington was 
probably the lowest semester of my life. It's a very competitive school, and I know how much of a perfectionist you are, and you must be kind of have a hard time with that. Yeah. Well, part of it was, and it was the same sort of thing, like an introduction session. So Mm -hmm. all these people are in a room, and like at IU, it was I was there alone, um, and they were talking about all the accomplishments of all the people matriculating into this MBA program. And I'm not usually one to like compare myself with people a lot, but it, it was intimidating. And it, it just was like this semester of, I mean, dealing with all my mental illness symptoms. You know, I was essentially an insomniac and having to commute about an hour a day. And all of that is fairly well resolved with me um, on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, sometimes you just, like, get into spaces in life, mm-hmm. and it just, like, hits you. Mm-hmm. And it was really just that sitting in an auditorium in a collegiate setting, mm-hmm. and it got to me. Yeah. What impresses me, Eric, more as I get to know you is that you recognize these uh, experiences as they come along and you take steps to remove yourself of that, whether it be a, a, at work, if you find yourself in a in an environment that is not conducive mm-hmm. to your mental health, you don't uh, you know you don't get caught up in in furthering that because of your ambition or mm. because of what other people think. Right. And I think that's what all of us with mental illness think, you know, need to, to take a hard look at. You know, I know in my career and the careers of others, uh, you know, we just ambition. We have to hold it in check. We have to think of the long term instead of instead of the short term. And that's going to help Neela to see you do that. Right. You know, the, the thing for me that's really helped me in times like that is doing my best to, to step back and, like, get my breathing under control and then just, like, ask myself, are there things happening right now that other people would be having a tough time with? And I, I think so. I mean, for me, it was a little more extreme, I would say, in, in my response and how fast my thoughts started going I mean it's crazy how sometimes like memories and thoughts can just like really accelerate Mm -hmm. mentally in those times uh, you know I say that there are reasons for this that are very rational Mm -hmm. you know the emotional response might be extreme but uh, it it helps me kind of get back into a resting place Mm -hmm. much quicker than it used to so Mm -hmm. and it was a great time Purdue was great uh, my daughter had my, a good time. My wife and family are uh, big Lafayette, Purdue uh, fans. Oh, yeah. Uh, many, many graduates in the family. Yeah. Yeah. So go cl- clinker Boilermakers. <laughs> I can't go quite that far yet. The, ho- the whole Boiler Up thing, I've never quite understood. Yeah, well, hey, get used to it, pal. <laughs> just, just for the record, this is the Hoosier State. It is the okay. State. I'll leave it at that. Basketball season's coming shortly. But even quicker is the uh, the election. It's here. We're like, what, a week, two weeks away? A week away. Yeah, and, you know, Eric took a big step in his vote. Well, it's not the first time, but... Um... Tony, you've been giving me a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> I... 
I am a bipartisan voter. Yes, he is. And uh, I called Tony up and I told him I voted bipartisan uh, mm -hmm. after he encouraged me to do so. And I was already kind of leaning that mm -hmm. way. I think well, it's just it's important just... To, to say the words, vote bipartisan. Yeah, and you know you gotta be you gotta look at the candidates and the policies, the print, you know, the platform. Wanted to give a shout out to D DJ Jaffe. I'm grateful for those who have put together a five point platform for yeah. mental illness reform to try to improve the care, uh, particularly of those uh, with serious mental illness who are languishing in prison and on the streets and laws right. that have uh, an impact on society as well as their care. Mm -hmm. And if you want to find out more about the platform, um, I encourage you to visit uh, mentalillnesspolicy.org. Mm -hmm. So Tony, you were, you were mentioning when you were in New Jersey, you really in earnest started writing your book. I write books very frequently. Um, it took me five years to write my first one. Yeah. <laughs> I, took, I needed some time off of that rigorous schedule, so I took about five years off. Sure. <laughs> so, it takes a lot. So now, it's a very emotional it, experience. It really writing. is. Writing spiritual memoirs, uh, I don't see how Anne Lamott, uh, Andy Dillard, Frederick Beekner, and... Uh, on right now and, and these people really managed to but I um, did write in earnest uh, my book is another spiritual memoir but it's very different it basically takes chronologically mm -hmm. my life and my ministry and reveals how God has uh, equipped me and challenged me in ways that I can be a wounded healer yeah. and carry that out um, I just <clears throat> reached the point where I describe an episode that really was hidden in my conscience. At least I had not tapped into the emotional impact it had on me. Yeah. And uh, related to one of the youth on our uh, youth mission trip, an episode she had. Um, and it took a great toll on me. I went into a very deep depression uh, and then started cycling. And mm -hmm. it's been a couple weeks now since that. And, and my writing has has suffered to the extent that it's really been two weeks since I've been able to write anything of value that I, that I see. Yeah. Well, we don't need to go into the details of it, but it was a tragedy. No. It was a know, great tragedy. It to this to this young lady. Yeah. But that's part of a, a spiritual memoir is to get into the detail of it and the experience mm -hmm. of it. I mean, there's a lot of internal prayer and introspection that mm -hmm. you have to draw upon. That's not something that you just sit down and do and write a paragraph every minute, you know? Mm. It, it takes a lot, Tony. I still have goals. You know, I, my goal is to write uh, 2,000 words a week which is very manageable. I expect the book will be around 30,000 words, so my goal is to have it a draft written by the end of the year. Be watching for news about From Despair to Delight, stories that cultivate compassion uh, for those or with those who have uh, mental illness. Mm -hmm. And we're hoping to come out Pentecost 2020 which is May the 31st. So we're we're on track, and That's I will good. be, barring anything unforeseen, I will be self-publishing 
Um, I just saw a cartoon that I uh, sent to Eric <laughs> about uh, a man on a psychiatrist couch that says, uh, I'm a self-publishing author who keeps sending rejection letters to himself. <laughs> So that's kind of how I feel sometimes. I was sure I was having that experience today. It's like this books aren't worth writing. I'm no good, and what what am I going to do? And there's a cost involved, and there's it's a very different journey if you're a self-publishing writer. Yeah, I just want to <laughs> say I I went on this silence and solitude retreat down to mm. the Saint Minerid mm-hmm. Monastery down in Southern Indiana. This was like maybe four years ago, and I didn't really have a lot of intentionality about what I wanted to pursue when I was there. I just wanted to be in that space. I took a computer because I, mm-hmm. I did want to write, and it turned out that I like really accessed some deep emotional mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. on my last morning mm-hmm. I was there. So it was like two nights there, silence and solitude, mm-hmm. and then it just came to me, and I was writing very quickly about things I'd not mm-hmm. thought about in ages. Yeah. So it, it's an interesting is, experience to find those spots. Yep. Writing is very much a therapeutic process. And yeah. It doesn't always feel good. Talk about uh, Sepe on the program later. She says, you know, you, you got to feel to heal. The same thing with writing. For me, writing even more than psychotherapy has been... It, well, I shouldn't say even more, but as I approach psychotherapy, I always do some writing before and after. Yeah. Because I don't think we can process unless, I mean, I can't process unless I put it on. There's a famous author, I can't remember who, but it says, how do I know what I feel until I write what I think? And mm. uh, I, I always found that mm. uh, very revealing. We could have a whole episode just yes, talking about this Yes, and maybe thing, we will. Yeah. Definitely. When the book comes out, we'll do a yes, no uh, doubt. We'll do a, a world uh, premiere episode of From Despair to. I'm Delight. going to be the voice of the ebook of From yes. Despair to Delight. Yes, there you go. <laughs> well, it will come out in ebook and print. Okay. Yeah. And... Or the audio book. So Tony <clears throat> Sepe Sabala, yes, wonderful guest. Absolutely, Sepe. I think our listeners will really enjoy her um, ebullient nature. Yes, ebullient is a great word. Articulate. She's ebulliently articulate. Yes. Or articulately ebullient. Yeah. She's a great example of someone uh, in the stability network that I'm a part of uh, who has just taken step after step to finally get to a point where she feels comfortable enough to reveal her, uh, her mental health diagnosis and her struggles to her employer. So this uh, interview really takes us down that journey and all, all the small epiphanies along the way that got her to the point where she could make, make the leap and mm-hmm. you know stand strong in stating her mental health struggles. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Seppi. Yeah. All right, Tony, we've got Seppi Zabala yes. on the phone. Woo, yes, here we're I am. excited to have Seppi. We were having so much fun before the interview. I, I hope we can keep the ball rolling. <laughs> yeah. Seppi yes. hails from California. Yes. Yep. What I part am, of California in... is Seppi? 
I'm in Northern California. I'm where they call uh, the Bay Area. I met Seppi in San Francisco about a year ago, last October. Right. And yeah. It was my first time in San Francisco. And yeah. Before we had our, you know, introductory dinner with the Stability Network crew, I rented a bike and I rode to the Golden Gate Bridge and it was good for you. the most amazing thing because as you roll up, you see the fog going under the bridge right. and you hear the foghorn. Right. And it, it just like chills uh, your bones in the best way. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then going yeah, over the true. bridge, there's just people right. of all different cultures just packed in walking mm. through there. And uh, right. uh, definitely something to do if you're ever in San Francisco. We've mentioned to Seppi that she's the first woman of color we've had, right. but as you said earlier, uh, Sappy, you feel like you're thoroughly Americanized. But uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about your upbringing and uh, sure. identity. Well, I definitely have been influenced by my parents' culture, and I'm very proud of it. Um, so they, you know, immigrated here from Iran in 1969. So the Shah was still, uh, you know, king. And they were, you know, fresh off the boat. We were fresh off the boat when I was born. I was born less than a year later. Wow. And, um, oh God, now everyone knows how old I am, but, uh, <laughs> so I was raised by foreigners for sure. Well, they were not on the same page. So dad really wanted us to assimilate quickly and be American mom really wanted to preserve the cultural connection. Yep. And so she taught me, you know, Farsi and I, I do have a very elementary ability to speak and understand, but uh, it was really against my dad's wishes. So my brother was born six and a half years later. And my dad and I joke that he grew up in a much different family than I did. Okay. Like his family, he, he he grew up in an American family, established middle class, upper middle class, you know, sure. in upstate New York. Whereas I was really struggling. Like we, we were, we were struggling when I was young. What so, part of New York? Um, what part of upstate? We were, we were in Albany. We were near the capital. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hail. Mm -hmm. My uh, work career was in the Finger Lakes. Do you ever do you ever get out there this time of year? Oh yeah, I'm there uh, six times a year usually. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it makes the Golden Gate Bridge look like eh, (laughs) like a man-made structure. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Oh, yeah, the colors out there in the Adirondacks this time of year are just So in addition to your culture, you uh, stand out in a way uh, with your faith. And I'd be curious Mm -hmm. to know how how that plays into your parents. Were they Christian before they came here? No, I mean, this, we could probably talk the whole time about my conversion, Mm -hmm. like what happened when I, it was, um, it was something like I grew up in a very white, very homogenous, uh, you know, area, wealthy, right? So I didn't really fit in there because I had this weird name and I was brown. And so I was sort of the oddball. Not to mention, I think when you have um, a mental illness, like you show signs as a kid, like, and I'm really clear about this. Like I was pretty impulsive. Mm -hmm. I was freakishly smart, you know, smart. So Uh I was like always trying to answer everything every question the teacher asked and you know finally they were like can we put her outside (laughs) so uh there were just things that I did as a kid that you know kind of set me apart um and then I grew up 
And as a teenager, I just found the stage. I found sports. I was super talented. So I rode those talents to get attention and, you know, praise. And then, but we didn't have any religion growing up. So, you know, our religion was be the best, be the best at everything. Right. Like really dominate as much as possible. Well, which, You're God. Which is kind of a common immigrant experience, right? You really are starting in a new place. You want to show the best of your culture, right? Is that fair? Oh, there's definitely a lot of right pride of achievement. And I mean, if you're an immigrant and you pick up and leave your country and your family and everything you've known and go, you know, put your stakes in a- around the world, someplace where you don't even speak the language, you're pretty boss. Yep. Yeah. Like you, you have some <laughs> high bars as yep. far as achievement goes. So yeah, definitely. If I was given everything that you could want to be successful. Sure. There's a lot of pressure in that, right? Yeah, there was, but I was successful in high school. So I, you know, I really uh, was sort of winning at that game until I got to college and got sick, you know. Okay. Um, so my my so my seeking started happening after I had my first episode of like my first major depression when I was nineteen. I was a sophomore, and um, you know I just crashed. Like I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't eat. My friends were all worried, and there were triggers. I mean, there's obviously things that happen, but you just find yourself reacting in ways that <laughs> most people don't. And I had no idea what was happening at the time. I just felt like a failure because I couldn't hit all those marks. Like I right. couldn't, I could no longer shine. And so what was I without that? I was nothing. And I went home for a year and that was probably the most miserable year of my life. Like it was so dark. How did, there was nothing. How did your parents respond? Not, not well. Not well at all. I mean, they really wanted me. I had sort of spoiled them um, and been this rock star yeah. for years. And so, you know, I, I, I'll never forget coming up. I, my room, my bedroom was in the basement and I came upstairs. I It must have been at the end of the workday because I heard my mom in the kitchen upstairs. And so I went upstairs and, you know, I've kind of been in the dark all day and had my PJs on. You know, mm-hmm. I did not look how you're supposed to look at six o'clock in the evening right and she just looked at me and she was like oh my god i can't i mean i can't even but the just the disgust Mm. and the i can still see her face like i can't remember exactly what she said but she still had her work clothes on and her heels on and she's racing around and she's got my little brother you know and and she's like you're such a bad example for your brother and oh oh my god you know Mm. and it was really brutal that probably didn't help your mental health very much. <laughs> wasn't a real pick me up at the time. No, but nothing, nothing could pick me up. Like no. there, there was nothing in that moment. Like I mean, she's just sort of echoed how I was feeling about myself anyway. Yeah. Were you diagnosed during that time? I got improperly diagnosed, as often happens with bipolar mm-hmm. two, as yeah. just a, you know clinically depressed. What happened was a, a best friend of mine had a therapist, like my best friend who I really looked up to uh-huh. growing up. And so I was willing to go to her therapist. It just made me feel a little less like a loser. Yeah. You know what I mean? It took a while, to, but I remember the moment where I was in his office and I just started crying about something. I don't know what it was. And he had to go. So he literally left me there with a box of Kleenex. <laughs> <And> he's like, <laughs> Here, try these. There. 
I know. I'm sitting there alone crying, but man, did that, but that was the turning point and I got better after that. Oh, and cool. uh, <clears throat> yeah, but I didn't get diagnosed. My parents didn't tell him, didn't tell him about the family, <laughs> didn't tell him that dad's sister had bipolar yeah. one and mom's mom had bipolar one. Oh, so wow. I probably could have gotten a proper diagnosis um, had they been more forthcoming mm. with the family history. Yeah. So it was really out of this time of desperation that you uh, searched yes. for faith. Started seeking. Yes, exactly. What I was that great segue. There was a moment I went, I was a jazz fan at the time. I was learning about jazz and going out, enjoying DC. I went to school in Washington, DC. When I went back to school after that leave, we were out at a jazz club and I was looking around the walls and they had, you know how jazz clubs will have all these portraits of jazz singers on the walls? Oh, yeah. Like, just the people, you know, and they were mostly African American and they were just glowing. Like they had this shine, like their skin was going, their teeth were like bright, you know, smiling. Their eyes had lights in them. They were just on fire. I'm like, I really remember looking at their portraits and going, I've never had that. I've never, what is that? You know? And so I don't even think I knew I was looking for God. I think I was looking for joy. I I think I was looking for that glow. And I did start seeking at that time. And of course, you know, I'm like 19, 20. I'm like, you know, maybe I'll start, you know, maybe they got that at church. So I started trying out all the different churches in (laughs) DC. And there are many, uh, AME, AMEZ, like the Baptist churches. I, you know, I went to a Jesuit school. So there was mass on campus. I tried that. I tried everything. Like I really did not discriminate. I was I left no stone unturned. I was so seeking. And then I even went to like <laughs> my uh, cousins lived out in Maryland. My aunt, so my uncle, my mom's brother, also Iranian, married an American Catholic. And so my cousins were raised in the Catholic Church, and they were going through their confirmation classes at the time. I think they were like twelve or th- so. I sat in on their. <laughs> classes i was you know in this little classroom and uh oh there was a moment there too where he asked about my name and my heritage and i wouldn't tell him and then there was a whole moment where oh such racism i just was Mm. like yeah i don't think this is for me i was really trying all kinds of things and i finally uh found you know it found me actually i met a couple of women on campus who were uh students there I studied the Bible. Like they really sort of uh, were about getting to know God and having a personal right. relationship with God, not so much joining a faith, but having a deep personal connection and relationship with God. And I really loved that. And I, and I found it. I found it. Like yeah. it was a powerful experience. I want to get to our signature question because you've talked a, a good bit about healing already. So, so what does healing mean to you? You know, he, healing, uh, it's such a good uh, context to put that question in because my answer to that is um, it's, it's like coming back from the pain. Like healing implies right away that there's been a trauma. There's been a hurt. Like you've fallen right? Like you've fallen, someone Mm -hmm. has, or someone has fallen on top of you, like one or the other, like you've either, you know, tripped and fallen or gotten hurt. And Mm -hmm. so now you need to come back. 
And there's a great, uh, I love the scripture where it says, you know, the righteous man, you know, it's not that he doesn't fall. It's just that no matter how often he falls, he gets back up again. Like he, he just never stays down. So healing for me means a willingness to go through that process of coming back, of, um, you know, really admitting, you know, even the healing that happened after I went off the meds that year. Like I had to learn new things. I had to swim every day. I had to really take care of myself, pay attention to what triggered me, what didn't, who triggered me. I had to make some hard choices of who got to stay close to me. Like who, Mm -hmm. who gets to be in my inner circle? You know, it isn't going to be these negative people that I've had here just by default, you know, because they're just who I've known. So really radical, radical decision-making with my health first, you know, because Mm -hmm. I was a mom. And so that was a motivator. Like I need to heal because I have these two little boys who depend on me. And, um, so by the end of that year, the doctor, you know, he's like, you're doing great. And I, he can take no credit for it. He said, he's like, I can take no credit for this. Cause he didn't give me meds, but I mean, I definitely appreciated the healing that the meds gave me, but the, the healing of, you know, a lot of people, it's funny, like they go someplace, right. Like to find healing, like you go to, uh, you know, a yoga retreat or like people who want to feel better, they, you know, light some candles, sing some songs. And all of that is so helpful for healing. As long as it allows you, it affords you the ability to, you know, go deep inside, right? Because I have to get to a quiet place with, with God, where I, I am feeling the pain of what needs to heal. I am processing all of that pain. And sometimes, you know, healing is seen as this like, Oh, I got to feel those good feelings. And, but you know, the freedom does not come. The freedom from the pain only comes if you allow yourself to experience it in all of its forms, right? Whether it's grief over a loss or it's, you know, pain from a relationship or, you know, whatever it is, if you're not willing yeah. to feel it, you won't heal it. Within the generation of your parents and you, there was, it was very quiet. It wasn't really discussed. Now that you're a parent, how how have you treated the you know the history of of mental health in your family with your your kids? Yeah, I mean, it's so funny. Like, I love that I went through what I did with my own you know illness in my family because. I'm so informed as to what worked and what didn't. I mean, I'm so grateful. It's funny. I, the TSN, the Stability Network, I mean, it, we, we mentioned yes. it early on. This last year, it's really changed uh, how I, you know, I talk about this stuff so much more easily. And I wrote a, a story about it. I, I tell a story like I started storytelling this year and I shared it with my son. And it was the story of how I came out in the, in the workplace uh, when I asked for yes. accommodations. And so my son reads the story and he's like, mom, you mean all that time we were talking about this stuff at home and you were hiding it at work? Like, he was like, he was like, I didn't even, uh, he, we talked about it so much. And so it was so normalized in our home that he didn't even realize it was, a, there was a stigma around having a mental illness. 
<laughs> yeah. He, 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 that was new when he went out there and realized, uh, you couldn't just talk about this stuff freely and naturally as if it was just another thing that happens in life. Uh, it was a revelation. He was like, wow, he was so successful in high school uh, on an alternate path. Like I really believed in giving my, uh, both my sons the bandwidth to do it their way, even in the public school system, which was not easy. Like I had to advocate at Kaiser to get the note that I needed to take to the principal so that they could give him what he needed there. And, you know, we went through IEP processes and all sorts of stuff. And at the end of the day, you know, I was able to really give my, my son permission to be different. And I don't want to say sick or ill, but just to be different, just to have to do it differently. And then my goal became, you know, because when you're a teenager, when you're like 14, 15, 16, and you're different, the real temptation is to feel really bad about yourself. Like, Mm. so I made sure, you know, that they had opportunities to build self-esteem. Like, and it could be as simple as like, make sure they have a car, like make sure they can drive. So get your driver's license and then be a good driver. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. you know, there were parents that, you know, asked my son to take their, you know, when they were going through a crisis, they're like, can you give my daughter a ride to rehearsals? And, um, you know, I didn't treat art as something, uh, uh, extracurricular either. Cause I knew right. how important creativity and art and expression is to, you know, anyone who suffers, uh, with these symptoms. Yeah, I mean, so it kind of gets back to the, the jazz musicians <laughs> staring at you on, on the walls <laughs> you know, the the irony, pictures. There's yes, an appreciation there. Absolutely. And I became a jazz singer, like, a like 10 years ago, I started actually singing jazz out in San Francisco. Nice. And now I sing almost daily, like pretty much daily I go out to, and it's very healing and helpful. You know, I want to get, Seppi, to the point you brought up about uh, sharing your diagnosis in the workplace, because, uh, you know, Eric and I talk a lot about stigma. He's really in the Stability Network, active in reducing stigma. I'm of a different mindset that basically stigma does certainly exist, but a, a big aggravating factor for stigma is our own self-stigma. We fear the consequences of, of sharing who we are and what we struggle with. And, and so it's, it's actually that hiding or covering up that creates more problems. Yeah. But I, you know, that's kind of a philosophical part. I, uh, you know, the practical part is what was it like for you when you shared your diagnosis in the workplace? This is an interesting story that TSN is sort of intertwined in. My experience has been very similar. I had already been at my company 10 years when I was in a position to ask for accommodations. I, it was either that or probably lose my job, right? And I had hidden this, you know, I, I tell a story about this, like my first TSN talk I gave was, a, was on this. My early experience after, right after my diagnosis in 2003, I went back to work after my second leave. So I took a maternity leave and then I took a six month disability leave. So I'd been out a lot. And I came back, you know, our HR manager, she, we'd been close. And so I just sort of frankly told her, yeah, I just got diagnosed. I have bipolar two. And she 
really, oh God, her, she just changed when I, I just, it's almost like I dropped a bomb. And, um, oh, wow. and then she shared a little bit about how her mom suffered with bipolar. Wow. And what I realized is that people who have experience with family members, like my parents, for example, this manager, and then other people I eventually talked to, you, you can't expect them to get it just because they've had that experience. Like, in fact, mm -hmm. they can sometimes be the most challenging people because they have their own things to heal from. Like they, they maybe right. haven't healed yet. And so you're dealing with someone yeah. who is in it with you in a way, but yeah. you're the perpetrator, you know, you're the one that's a threat now. Um, yeah. so after that experience and you know, our, the nature of our interactions changed after that. And I didn't feel safe, um, because of it. And so I ended up leaving that job. But when I got to my new job, I was like, I'm never talking about this. Like, this is something I no, nobody's going to know about this. And so yes. I hit it and I compensated by thinking I'm going to be the highest performer here. Like they're never going to mm -hmm. get rid of me, you know, and I built all this goodwill I thought, but you know, in certain environments that just makes you stand out as someone who's setting the bio bar a little too high. So yeah. it ingratiated me to my managers, but it alienated me from my peers. Yep. So I was a little bit of a lost puppy there um, at times when I needed help, you know, especially when the kids started going through their stuff. Um, I just really started to suffer because I could not perform. And uh, so I ended up taking... And you didn't want to talk about your family heck situation. Heck no. I, I mean, I did. It was know. easier to talk about the kids than it was to talk about myself. Yep. So right. that was kind of a saving grace in that I could tell, tell about them. But, you know, in certain settings, you just show up as someone with personal problems that you can't leave at the door. So, you know, one manager encouraged me to take my first leave. So I took a 12-week disability leave, you know, to take care of my son. And my company is very generous. It's very wealthy, actually. So it can afford to pay you, you know, so I got my full pay. Mm -hmm. So I got a lot of practical support, but I didn't have to share anything about myself, and then it got to the point where, you know, fast forward a few years, I was the one suffering and I was like hiding behind copiers crying and I didn't, I couldn't stop crying and I didn't, I couldn't do it anymore. And so I took a leave and this time I came back, it was in the fall and I came back in the middle of review season and it was just the most brutal review. And it was not mm. sort of indicative of what I'd done up until the leave they just left out things like they were so tainted by the leave and so I went back to my psychologist and I was like I think now's the time to ask for accommodations I think if I don't tell them because I was like yeah. why do my colleagues that get sick with a physical illness why do they mm -hmm. get so much compassion like cards and visits and why am mm -hmm. I getting hate like, why is this happening? It's not fair. Uh -huh. And then in that, I think maybe God or whatever voice said, but they don't know. They don't yeah. know. I was like, oh, uh -huh. right. They don't know. How can I expect them to understand if they don't know? Exactly. So I took the chance and we wrote a letter. We asked for accommodations. And that meeting with my manager, my HR manager, both of them, was the most frightening it's the most frightening thing I've ever done. And I've come to find out now that you don't need to share your diagnosis when you ask for accommodations, but the form they gave me asked for it. So, and they told me that I would have to 
reveal that. I learned that last weekend. Uh, <laughs> I, t- I add that to the story. Your doctor needs to share why you need it, but they don't need to share your diagnosis. But at the time, okay. I thought, so this was the most frightening moment of my life. But I had nothing to lose. So my back was against the wall. I was going to have to, you know, I'm like, what's the worst that could happen? I need to go find another job. I'm going to have to do that anyway. They didn't give me what I asked for, but they did accommodate. They did allow me to change my schedule in a way that a few of my other colleagues already did. And it worked. It was it was good enough. Okay. But the best part that came of that is that the managers whose team I was on had a son or daughter, I think, who suffered with some either ADHD or some learning difference that they'd been going through as a family. So she was incredibly empathetic without being patronizing because she, she got it, you know, she gets it. And so she championed me that whole, you know, the first half of 2015, it was just an amazing thing. And I sat right outside her office and just to have somebody who knew who also uh, did not reject me or you know, it was just, it was pretty powerful. And then that August was when I heard about TSN. My, my therapist handed me the article in the wall street journal that Catherine, you know, highlighted Catherine where they said Catherine the same Switz. thing in that article that if you just have one person, I mean, the whole firm doesn't need to know, but if just one person it can be enough sometimes. May I ask Seppi, your accommodation that you requested, what what was that in the workplace? Yeah. So at the time I asked for a schedule change. So I had kids to get to school in the morning and then to, you know, manage them in the afternoon. And so those transitions, transitions typically are really uh, vulnerable times for me, whether they're huge life transitions or just daily transitions. Anytime sure. I'm transitioning, I'm vulnerable. We asked for like, could I start at 9am and then leave it you know, work nine to two or whatever, and then do the rest at home. And at the time, my team was remote. So I didn't support, I'm an executive assistant, and I didn't support anyone who had an office in the office, right? Yeah. They maybe could have, but in the end, they offered, you know, they, they came back and said, you could work, you could start at 6 a.m. and work till two. So that was the offer that they gave. And so instead of working nine to five or eight to four, work six to two. And I was like, yeah, I'll try. Why not? You know, it wasn't easy getting to the office by six, obviously, but something about like not trying to juggle it all was really helpful. Like I only had to worry about me in the morning. Nobody else was up. There was no one on the train going to San Francisco. Like there was so much space in my life that I wouldn't have had. And if I had started at nine, it wouldn't have been the same experience because I would have been right uh-huh. in the middle of rush hour. We would have been juggling the kids. And all the stress. All, it would have been more stressful. So what they came back with in the end, I couldn't manage the home front in the morning, but I didn't need to. I, I just had to manage myself before work. And that was uh, life-changing. It was a life-changing. And then I could get off at two, go pick you know my son up from middle school and manage his afternoon and be there it was just a great blessing it was a great blessing would you say it was even a better outcome than you anticipated the accommodation was better like and this and this was a great experience for me to have right away because i could have been resentful i could Mm -hmm. have been resentful that they didn't give me what well my doctor said and i and you should and why not and they're not even here and blah 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 
And instead, I just, you know, I talked to an attorney to understand, I wanted to understand what my employer's rights were, you know, like I didn't want to just know what my rights were. And the employer has rights too. Like they're running a business. Mm -hmm. They have to sort Mm -hmm. of, and I decided I don't want to stick out too much. Mm -hmm. If there's a way for me to do this and not stand out, I think that's what I'd want, you know? And so Mm -hmm. if I look like I'm just doing what these five other assistants do, and I just am another one that needs to do it for whatever reason, great. That's even better because I don't have the added pressure of standing out, which is also pressure Mm -hmm. in an environment like that. You're a mom taking care of your kids. Exactly. Like I just, I don't need to, it doesn't need to, not that I need to hide it, right? I don't have, I don't have to be afraid, but I also don't have to tell everybody. It just takes, like he said before, a lot of discernment. It's really helpful to have a faith in, in a greater power that can guide and inform and help because some of this stuff is just too much to figure out. You know, you just, lucky you get blessed and that was a blessing that experience was a total blessing i really uh learned a lot that i don't have to get what i want and sometimes when i get what i need it's even better um and so work with my employer work where it's a team we're on a it isn't a job it's a journey and we're doing this together Say more about developing your story with Stability Network because you're you're kind of in the midst of doing that right now, right? I am. Yeah, it's been like like Eric said earlier. It's it's not even been a year since that conference, and I was actually a right. member of the Stability. Well, what happened was my my psychologist hands me that clip out from the Wall Street Journal. He's a luddite, so he still actually reads a paper paper. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> His paper is still paper. And, um, and he clips this out and we both just sort of had a moment like, wow, this is in the wall street journal. And, you know, I work for a financial firm. And so in that setting, there's really no context for this stuff. Like at least not then now there is, it's just amazing to think how much has changed in five years, but I think it's because suicides on the rise and, you know, brain health has become front and center as a national conversation with the rise in the suicide rates. Um, and the, it's really sad actually. But, um, back then I saw that in the journal and I was like, wow. And I literally like found it online, of course, and I sent it to family and friends and it just really, uh, gave me so much courage. And I wrote to Catherine, I, I emailed her and I was like, thank you so much for your courage to put your photo in the Wall Street Journal and own all of this. It was a tremendous moment in my journey. And, you know, she invited me to join at the time and I was too scared. Like as much as I admired, <laughs> I admired that other people were talking about it, but I, there was no way because I had kids. I didn't want their friends going back to them and saying, Hey, I heard your crazy mom on the, you know, like I was, I was really protective. Um, Uh and that felt right at the time. It wasn't until I went to the conference last year and actually was in that room. And I recently uh, told the story. I I was getting ready to tell this story of that day and how that day impacted me because remember we heard uh, Paul, like we had all those workshops with John Capecci, the author of living proof 
you know, yes. how to tell your story to make a difference. And uh, right. so we had all those little workshops and I did a little elevator pitch, you know, that everybody helped me with that day. But then I think it was Sunday morning, Paul Currington, the coach, you know, the Stability Network. Who, who we just had on the show telling his story. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. He told his story about how he, you know, his suicide attempt. And he just made us laugh the entire time. Like it was so. Right. And I was nervous. I didn't know what to expect. And most of the time I was not really, I mean, you would think I would have such a stake in people supporting people, but honestly, I was that person that if I heard somebody talking about their mental illness, I would turn the channel. I don't want to see this. I don't want to hear this. I mean, and talk about when Tony was talking about your own stigma, like the stigma you have, like, I think that's Uh the most important one. It isn't even about what everybody else thinks about this. It's about what you think and feel about it. What do you feel? And, you know, after that weekend, I felt proud. I was proud. I was like, I don't need to feel bad about this another day. And I am going to start telling my story. And so I started working with Paul and Bill Burnett and, you know, Megan, like the monthly calls where they do this, you know, workshop. And then, you know, you get to pitch your story and then get feedback and then come back with it. Like that was the whole first half of this year. And then working with Paul one-on-one, you know, we'd have phone calls where we'd work on, you know, certain aspects. And then by April, you know, someone heard me on the workshop call, tell this story. And then they're like, Hey, can you come tell that at USF, you know, in a couple of weeks? And so, you know, pretty quickly I got the opportunity to probably overcome my worst fear, which was to speak publicly about my experiences as somebody with bipolar too. I'm excited about you uh, sharing your story more broadly and we'll have to follow your, uh, where, where the Lord leads you in that. For me, what I'm hearing is from the beginning, your value of joy. You know, you didn't, you didn't speak the joy as part of your healing, uh, dur- during that question, but you did speak to joy as really the impetus, you know, as a younger woman in college is what you you wanted for yourself. You saw it in, in those jazz artists. And uh, I-, I would say just, you know, meeting you in San Francisco, you know, the phone calls we've had, this conversation, you, you are full of joy. You are quick to laugh and uh, share difficult things with a with just a measure of honesty and self-reflection and humility that uh, is beautiful, you know, and will will help people hear your story and be uh, moved and, and I think healed themselves and inspired to, to experience and discover joy. Mm, thank you so much. I, yeah, it's, um, it's worth all the work. Joy is a, it is a well inside that bubbles over, right? And I work hard at keeping that flowing because it is the best medicine for sure. It's funny because I get now, like what I get the most, especially when I'm speaking, uh, you know, at, U- at University of San Francisco, more than one person came over to me after and said, you were glowing. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I was like, right. really? Like, you know, like nuclear stuff? Like, a worm like <laughs> glowing like what but it was uh it was neat it was like a saint <laughs> no i don't think so it was just the oh ring above God. your head <laughs> it was probably the sweat it was probably the, the fear uh but yeah 
no, it's uh, it's worth it. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks this for has making been great, time for us. Thank and, you. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity. Tony, Seppi, Sabala, wonderful guest. Yeah, I'm really glad you had introduced me to her and uh, that she came on our program. Mm-hmm. Thought it was a good episode. I, I really enjoyed editing this and just seeing the transitions throughout her life uh, to go from being part of a immigrant family and going through a number of transitions, a number of epiphanies. Of course, the, the jazz moment really uh, stuck out for me because of wanting whatever you know these musicians had and, and the uh, portraits she saw. Yeah, you know, I, as we were talking earlier, I, the the one thing that distinguished Seppi more so than our other guests, although everyone has their own, but it is, it's her otherness. You know, it, part mm-hmm. of it is being an immigrant family coming from one. Also, the, you know, absolute drive that they had to succeed, their religious upbringing being different, um, not so much upbringing, but but the ethnic religious identity, right? Um, her parents moving away from that, but then her uh, finding meaning in in a Christian context, right? So there's the otherness of that, and then as we discussed with her, the otherness of mental illness mm-hmm. and how that impacted her. And through it all, she really discovered more about herself as well as more about the the culture where she lived. Right. Um, I found her to be a very thoughtful and thought-provoking guest. She had some epiphanies along the way. She talked about, you know, this kind of first healing she experienced when uh, she became a Christian and then uh, noticing that uh, there was still some healing that was left to do and uh, understood that this underlying mental illness was not addressed, then this epiphany of medicine, the impact that had on her life, then just the transition from being very private about it. I really thought was profound when she was talking to her son about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sharing what was going on with her employees, with her, with, with her coworkers. And he just assumed his mom would have been honest and transparent about her mental health much sooner uh, in her career. And just taking those steps and then, you know, because of the transparency she was able to get to with her employer and that leading into her experience with with the Stability Network. Mm -hmm. I just really sensed joy throughout this interview. You know, I I can hear her boldness, uh, her confidence, but yet a, a level of humility to know you know what she's been through, and because of that, her desire to to share her story with others, and not to make it sound easy, mm-hmm. you know, but to to show all the strides she's taken and all the courage uh, she's had along the way to get to where she is today. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think one thing she really gets about mental illness and the human experience that in general, is that, you know, there can be redemptive suffering. But in order to uh, experience redemptive suffering, we first have to notice how it impacts us. And she had the line that meant so much to me, you got to feel before you heal. Mm -hmm. And that's so true of 
what might be considered a distinctive Christian perspective because other faiths might say, you know, suffering is an illusion Mm. or uh, something to avoid or uh, a lack of faith. Mm. Uh, uh, But in her view, which I think is distinctly Christian, is in order to experience a healing of spiritual, of physical, you, you just have to enter into the pain. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Seppi. It was a great insight and a wonderful response to what does healing mean to you. Tony, as we wrap up, I just wanted to read our most recent review coming from David the Rainbow Wolf. It says, five stars, the high intelligence and unique wisdom of these two podcasters regarding mental illness comes from continual work on their own personal journey and from continual listening to and learning from people with severe mental illness. They also seek wisdom from family and community figures who care for people with mental illness. So they are perfectly suited to hold these regular discussions about this complex and often misunderstood part of human life. That's very touching. We know David personally, um, and he's come a long way in his own journey. And for someone to say that about us is, uh, I mean, it brings tears to my eyes. I think it's uh, marvelous. Uh, yeah. It makes me think that we're doing something right. Yeah. So n- next month? We have uh, the good fortune of talking to my personal therapist, Brian Ross, Yeah, who is coming in studio. He will discuss some of his philosophy, some of his broad experience. He's been involved as a uh licensed clinical social worker in a variety of capacities, including court cases and uh, clinical settings and also now a private practitioner. Mm. Um, he'll talk. One thing that we'll ask him is uh, the difference between being a, a Christian counselor and a counselor who uh, is Christian. Yeah. Uh, he'll also reveal my deepest, darkest secrets. <laughs> <laughs> so stay tuned. Yeah, yeah. That'll be fun. Thank you, Tony. Good to have you back in studio here. Okay, good to be here. Yeah. Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. If managers could only dress up as the village people, <laughs> it would make it so much easier. That would, that would be great for our mental health. It would. It would make it so much easier to talk about this stuff. People in my office dress up like Devo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow.